The following podcast may contain graphic content and details that some listeners may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Digital Forensics in Real Life, DFIRL, as we call it. My name is Kim Bradley with Magnet Forensics. I've been in the digital forensics field for several years, and today I'll be talking to someone else who's worked in this field for a while, Detective Chad Gish, a 22-year veteran of the Metro Nashville Police Department. We'll be discussing his critical role in solving the tragic case of Tiffany Ferguson, a 22-year-old ICU nurse who was brutally murdered in her Nashville apartment on February 28, 2017. What I find so fascinating about this case is what it says about the way digital technology has become a part of so many lives, even for folks we may not think of as being highly connected. We hear jokes about how everyone and their grandma is on Facebook now, but the truth of this case is that a man with no home, job, or cell phone service still produced a vast digital footprint for forensic examiners to explore. For those who want to learn more, a scholarship has been set up in the name of Tiffany Page Ferguson. It is awarded each year to a high school graduate from Tiffany's hometown of Laredo, Tennessee. To quote the scholarship fund website, the recipient should not only achieve, but possess the nurturing, selfless qualities as Tiffany did. And with that, here's Detective Chad Gish to discuss this case. Hi, Kim. How are you today? Good. You doing okay? Doing great. Let's get started talking about this case. So tell me sure. a bit about how this case originated. Well, thanks for the invite first. This is this is a sad case. It's it, Well, all murders are sad, uh, obviously, but Tiffany, Tiffany was a good person. Um, Tiffany was a nurse. She was an ICU nurse at, a, at St. Thomas Hospital West here in Nashville. Um, just loved by her family, uh, loved by her friends, her colleagues. She had a twin sister named Allie, uh, an identical twin sister, matter of fact, and um, Allie testified at her trial. But Tiffany was a great person. Um, she grew up in North Alabama, and she was just the people that I've talked to through the investigation. She was just a joy. Um, in fact, during this this long trial that we had for her murder, her colleagues from work, if they weren't working, they were all there in trial. And a lot of her same colleagues nurses, doctors, so to speak, after they got off their long 12-hour shifts during the night would come and show up in uh, support of, of Tiffany and her family at the trial. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, it's it's pretty, pretty amazing. Gone way too early in life, I can tell you that. Like a lot of these young people, the interesting fact and the very, very sad fact about this case is that Tiffany wasn't doing anything wrong or anything illegal, right? We run into so many murders where, um, you know, all murders are really not the same when you're when you're dealing with murders. Murders are tragic, uh, but sometimes when you have drugs involved, gangs involved, things of that nature, murders can be prevented by just not getting into those activities. But when you get off your shift as an ICU nurse and you're laying in your bed in your condo asleep at night and 
some scumbag comes into your apartment with the intent of burglarizing it and then stabs you nine times while you're sleeping after you wake up is just horrible. And it wasn't the way for her to go. It wasn't the way that she should have went. And I come to work every day. I put my boots on, my gun on like everybody else. But these are the type of cases that keep me coming back because, number one, we want to find that justice for these victims. That's number one. And it's our job to do that. It's our job as law enforcement to come in, find these people, find the right person, bring the right evidence to trial and bring justice for these victims. So basically how the case started was it was around five o'clock in the morning, and I believe it was on the 28th of February of 2017. Um, and we received a call that there had been a person stabbed inside of a condo over in the area of town, nice area of town in Nashville called the Wedgwood Houston area neighborhood. Um, it's right over in South Nashville off of I-65 near the fairgrounds. So patrol gets over there. Obviously, the detectives arrive on the scene pretty quickly, uh, and they find Tiffany uh, there stabbed and deceased in her bed. She'd been stabbed nine times, not once, Kim, nine. Nine times is not being stabbed once. I mean, this is absolutely a horrific crime. And one of her stab wounds at autopsy that went through uh, Tiffany's heart was five and a half inches deep. And for those of you that know a lot about homicide investigations, especially when a stabbing is involved, five and a half inch deep wound is very, very, very substantial. It takes a lot to go in with a knife at five and a half inches. But uh, in a nutshell, we were brought in, obviously, um, our computer forensics team, originally because we had video at the scene. Uh, the suspect had fled the scene. We had set a perimeter around the crime scene. It was raining that day. And the one thing that we had was surveillance video from the location. The location meaning the apartment or the condo. Right. Her, her condominium. Her residence, yeah. Right. And there were cameras outside. Uh, we, we accessed those cameras pretty quickly and found the subject there right before she was murdered. And it was grainy video. We obviously couldn't tell who this person was. Uh, we're talking about a case that was four years ago. So video then could have been better, I guess, even four years ago, but it wasn't. It was at nighttime. It was dark or in the early morning time. So the video was grainy. We couldn't make out the person, and the camera was a good distance away. But what we could make out was the clothing. We knew that it was jeans. We knew the type of shirt that he was wearing. Obviously, it was black and white video for, from being nighttime. They weren't low-light cameras. So we started going through this video, looking at this video. We put it out on the news pretty quickly. Uh, still didn't have a suspect at the time. And then started going through and canvassing the crime scene. We knew he fled on foot. We saw him flee on foot from the camera. Uh, we knew what direction that he fled. Um, so, so we started searching the perimeter, the inner perimeter first, and then the outer perimeter for, for evidence. You say that he went into the apartment, into the condo, right. right? And you have that video showing going into the condo and you have the video showing him coming out of the condo as well. Is that right? That, that's true. And I guess one thing that should be noted is this wasn't premeditated murder. We know that the suspect in the case ended up being a person named Christopher McLawhorn. And 
McLawhorn was on the video and we saw him in the condominium and his intent of what he was doing was pulling on car handles and breaking into vehicles. He was homeless. He was breaking into vehicles, um, not actually smashing the windows in per se, but he was trying to get the doors open to scuffle through, see what he could find and get out. And that turned into him checking doorknobs on residences. And unfortunately, one of Tiffany's doors was unlocked at her condominium. So that's when he went inside. The, the right. intent was to burglarize. Okay. Right. And we think, obviously, that McLawhorn knew that she was in there asleep because he would come out of the residence and he had an area over there where he was stacking things. I believe he took her laptop, took a couple of more things, and he would stack things right there. Um, and then the last time he came out, that's when the murder happened and he fled the scene. So we started looking at the crime scene, the perimeter, and doing a search there with CSI. Um, obviously, the dogs came out to, to do a search as well. It was raining, so didn't pan out like we thought it would. Uh, but one thing, and you've been in law enforcement for so long as well, um, I think what makes a, a, a great digital investigator um, is a digital investigator who has worked major crimes in the past and has been the lead on these uh, in uh, these uh, investigations. Myself, I was in the armed robber unit for many years before I came over, I think it was about 17 years ago into digital forensics. So I have a background in working high profile cases, major violent cases, and that helps so much that I found out in the 17 years. I didn't, when I first started computer forensics, um, you may have had to show me what a hard drive was, right? I mean, like a lot of us back in the day. Uh, but I went to the training, I learned, I persevered. But one thing you didn't have to show me was how to investigate a violent crime because that's where I came from. I knew how to do it. So when we, when we go out, and that helps so much, when we go out, we start looking, uh, and we recover two things of, of, of extreme importance at the time. There was a railroad pass, some railroad tracks that went um, parallel to her a condominium a block or two away and we started going down these tracks and searching the tracks and uh we found a toboggan laying there on the train tracks um homeless people well use that as a as a cut through a lot so we weren't sure exactly if this was related it was raining it was wet but it was something we needed to collect it hadn't been there long we, we knew that so we collected this toboggan and the interesting thing about this this hat is we were hoping maybe DNA off of the toboggan, uh, but the interesting fact, and then when you put an investigation, knowing what to collect, and then first thing that went through my mind when I see this toboggan is it was so unique. Maybe upon maybe, if we ever get a suspect, we can find him wearing this in a video and a picture of something of that nature. Uh, he had the toboggan on on the surveillance video, but you couldn't make out the uniqueness of it. But um, on the hat itself was a patch, just a patch in the front of the toboggan. And it was one of these old school Nintendo controllers, the old NES or SES or whatever they called this controller back then. So, you know, that was probably one of two hats just like that, that would be in our city of 700,000 people, right? Not everybody has that type of hat. So we knew to collect it, we collected it. And then uh, lo and behold, crime scene found what they thought the murder weapon was um, in some bushes near the crime scene. Uh, it was a large kitchen knife, so and, and that was collected. 
So we didn't have a suspect at the time. We only had the video that didn't help us a whole lot other than a clothing description. Um, but detectives, uh, were homicide detectives, they were able to develop a suspect pretty quickly. Homeless people, uh, and they developed a, a couple of people, uh, maybe maybe two or three at the time. But one of their one of their targets at the time, they didn't know a hundred percent, but it was uh, Christopher McLawhorn. So they brought they picked him up from the downtown area, brought him in. One of the first things we noticed when they picked him up the day after, I believe it was the a, a day after that Tiffany was killed. They brought him in, did an interview, read him his Miranda rights, agreed to give an interview and started talking. Uh, but one thing they did notice was they didn't have the same clothes on, which um, isn't detrimental, but with homeless people, a lot of times um, they wear the same clothes. But in the manner in which Tiffany was was murdered, um, we would not expect him to have the same clothes on. Uh, just put it that way, with, with all of the blood that could have been on, 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 on his clothes. But he was brought in, um, the detectives interviewed him and uh, let him go that afternoon. We just didn't have enough to hold him at the time. Uh, talking to the detectives, they didn't feel at the time that they had enough to get uh, his phone, to seize his phone with the search warrant. Um, I don't know exactly how that interview played out. I just know that they did arrest him for the murder um, about a week later. And they brought him in, they recovered his phone, and they turned his phone into us. Okay, so to this point, we have someone who is the main suspect that they had enough to arrest him. He is then brought in, and now we have a cellular device. We have a mobile phone that is going to come to your unit for examination, right? Right, and and obviously that's what we're after. Uh, interview didn't help him a lot with McLawhorn, so the next step, and, and I tell people a lot, and I think everybody that's going to listen to this podcast out there understands too that probably the most important and the most critical evidence that we can recover in a violent crime anymore isn't in DNA with the touch DNA and the transfer DNA and all of these different things now. But um, I would say most people would agree that it is some type of digital evidence. Uh, at least it is in, in, in my experience with in Nashville of the murders and the violent crimes that we have, I would say that probably about 90% of our smoking gun evidence comes from some type of digital evidence, i.e. mostly cell phones, right? If we can get into these phones. So obviously, even in 2017, we were doing the same sort of thing. Uh, 2017 was a little different if we fast forward to 2021 now. When we did phone dumps then, there was a lot of things I know a lot of investigators were hoping they could get in here, but technology just hadn't risen to that yet, right? So, uh, you know, we're doing our standard databases on text messages, on internet history, third-party applications, text messaging, all of these databases, and then we're getting those major categories and we're looking at them. We hadn't got to the point yet where we are now, where we can look at things such as Knowledge C databases and the data contained within GPS databases, cell towers that are logged into the phone, Wi-Fi cache points that are logged into the phone, the things that we look now, and I think even today, we're still looking forward, um, but any investigator who's done a lot of this type of work in the past, we never take this for granted when we get these new types of data to look into. So the f cell phone came, uh, it was some cheap K series of an LG, 
we didn't have the passcode to it, but you know, back then, uh, not everything was encrypted. So I either did an ISP or a chip off on the phone. I believe it was an ISP, uh, got the full data dump on, on McLawhorn's telephone and then, uh, started looking through it, just started doing analysis. So for those who, who may not know that are listening, tell us what you mean by an ISP just briefly or by a chip off. What are you, what are you referring to there? Well, let's talk about a chip off first, because I think that's where we need to start. Uh, before these phone companies started encrypting all the data on the microchips, uh, think about the passcode on a phone as being just a wall that if you could get over or under that wall and access that data chip that was on the other side, the data could be accessible. It wouldn't be encrypted. So you have to find a way either over or under that wall to access this data. The passcode only serves as the wall. So the passcode is basically software firmware based. If you can remove the chip, the actual physical EMMC chip from the phone, then you've removed that wall. You've removed that gate around there. Uh, and over time, a lot of people smarter than me have figured out how to do this with uh, pulling a chip off the phone using heat. There's grinding methods. There's milling methods. Any way that we can actually remove this chip off of the board of a phone. We clean that chip up. We resolder the solder points on that chip. And then uh, this is where we go with the smarter people than me. <laughs> Obviously, we take these chips and then they've developed these ways of coming in and actually pulling the data off of these chips. And in, re in reality, it's a chip programmer. Every chip has to be programmed or deprogrammed one way or another. When you think about an EMMC chip that's soldered onto the phone, it's nothing more than uh, something like a, the, the way I tell it to a jury is it's nothing more than a chip that you push into your phone like a micro-secure di digital card. It's the same type of material. It's just structured different onto the phone. So once you get that chip removed, you get it cleaned up, you get it resoldered, um, you can put it in different hardware to actually read the data on that chip. The data can be read because we've already talked about the wall being removed and the data isn't encrypted on the chip. Uh, fast forward to today's phones, we could still remove the chip off of a phone that would be password protected and encrypted, right? We can still remove that chip. There's still readers out there that would read these chips, but then what type of data are we going to get from this full dump uh, or extraction of a chip if it's encrypted? We're just going to get a bunch of gobbledygook encrypted data because the companies have realized that we're going through and we're doing chip offs and we're doing ISPs and we're doing JTAGs and we're going around their little uh, false wall that they've built and we were getting the data kind of easily. So I hope that explained it. That's the way I understand it more, more, more or less. Um, and ISP is basically the same thing as a chip off. Um, you're using resistors and different components, uh, but you're not physically removing the chip from the phone. Uh, chip off is kind of a last resort uh, process. Once you remove that chip off of the phone, you're, you've got to be really good at it. Because if you burn that chip, get the chip too hot, uh, if you're milling and you mill too much off of the board down into the chip, you're done. Basically, your data is ruined. 
So a chip off is a last resort process. So um, it seems that chip offs came first and myself, I've probably done over 700 chip offs of different phones. You get really good at things that you repeat. Um, right. And, and I got really good at chip offs. I'm glad I don't have to do them anymore. Right. It's just so much work, but um, there's always some other type of technology building right behind what we're using. And I think that building of technology right behind the chip offs was an ISP. It's the same process basically of removing that wall, but you're actually soldering wires, little bitty small hair wire to the resistors that are actually programmed in that board to go onto those BGA connectors under that chip. So if you ever look at the backside of a chip, right, and you get it all cleaned up, and you look at it under a microscope or a magnifying glass, there's a whole lot of little dots on there, right? And those are just, those are called BGAs. Uh, and the, each one of those small dots has a different job. There's a different purpose. One can control clock speed. One can control power. One can control data in, data out. So one is a command. So if you know these actual pinouts of where the, the, there may be 150 BGAs on the back of the chip, but we're only using seven. Uh, I don't know if I can explain them right now. I think power, VCO, VCA, you know, but there's seven that we're using. The, the ISP, uh, people have already done pinouts on these and they've done research and they understand when you look at that board, there's not only the chips and all of the hardware components that are soldered to that board. There's a lot of resistors. And the resistors go to different BGA connectors through that board on copper connectors. So if you know the resistors to solder to, that's just like being at the resistor on the backside of that chip. So really you're soldering wire to the seven different resistors ground, all of these different things that you need. And then you're connecting all of these wires to a bridge device that goes through some certain piece of software that can power that foam board up and pull that data off of that chip without having to, to pull the chip. The, the pros of doing an ISP are number one, it's non-destructive. So you're not completely tearing your chip off. If it fails, you can remove those solder wires, put that phone back together and you haven't lost anything. The cons of doing an ISP are number one, you got to have the pinouts and know which one of these hundreds of resistors to uh, solder to. And number two, it's extremely time consuming. And you don't want to drink any coffee while you're trying to solve those wires. <laughs> I bet not. So you were able to get this extraction, though, using the ISP method that you've explained right. here. So you were able to go around the passcode that you were talking about since your suspect wouldn't give it to you. And so then you're able to get this collection of data from that chip, from the cellular device. So now you have data to look at, right? Now you're able to do what with that data? Well, at the time on a case like this, of this magnitude, I mean, everybody sitting in these chairs doing this, yourself included, when you were working, you have a toolbox, you have a taint, you, you have a frame of mind of how you're going to tackle a certain device, right? So the first thing to do was take this extraction uh, and, and, and go through and process it with as many forensic platforms as I could. Uh, I use Axiom quite a bit uh, as my go-to. That was one of the first things, IEF and Axiom, that, that I used to process the phone with. 
I think I also used oxygen to process the phone. You go through here, you start finding all of this data, and you, you start seeing what makes sense to you. Obviously, a case like this sometimes can be like shooting fish in a barrel, right? I mean, the data is just low-hanging fruit that can hang out there to you. And one of the first things I think we've already mentioned that I wanted to search for was actually that hat. Could I find that hat? Was this hat going to be listed? What I tell a lot of these homicide detectives now is we help them. We've done this so much. Um, again, I did this so much working violent cases in armed robber unit and working a lot of homicides in my early career. I know how to investigate these cases. I know how to write search warrants. Search warrants are hugely important, even now when it pertains to digital evidence. We're seeing a lot of search warrants uh, for digital evidence get, get suppressed by these different judges because they're not descriptive enough. The detectives are, are, are basically a lot of times writing warrants, uh, putting a small amount of PC in this warrant and then uh, sending it off to the judge going over there, but in their warrant, they're saying, okay, this is what I want. I want all of this data for this reason. You know, judges are starting to say no, right? And being on the fourth amendment, I kind of understand where that's going, right? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a true believer in the bill of rights. And if you're going to write a search warrant, it better be, better be solid. So we're helping them write these better warrants. We're helping giving them checklists, not only ask for digital pictures and videos, Ask for the metadata for this because of this. Don't ask just for GPS data. Ask for location data, but location data can reside here, 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 and here. So if you only want location data, right, and that's all you have probable cause for, where else could location data be, be stored? It could be stored in pictures. It can be stored in internet entries. It can be stored in a lot of places. So they're getting better and better at writing these search warrants. And what I tell these detectives when they come in and, and we're talking about these search warrants is I've instilled it into their brain that one of the first things that I'll look at is what? Internet history, right? I mean, you look at patterns of use and a pattern of life on somebody with their phone. You could take my phone today, Kim, start looking at my phone and tell what I like to do, how much I work, when I watch TV, what political affiliation that I'm with, where I like to eat, right? I mean, we do that with everything. And you can do that with suspects. So you look at this pattern of life and you start looking down through here. And one of the first things that I like to do on a case like this, where I'm assuming there's going to be low hanging fruit is, is actually go in and start doing a timeline, a pattern of life. So obviously, yes, with McLawhorn, I start going in, I start looking. One of the first things I look for is his internet history. Start looking at this. And I go back three or four weeks before, and we see a pattern. We see a pattern of dope, drugs, porn. Dope, drugs, porn. Bus fare, how do I get here? Stolen merchandise. And then right after Tiffany was murdered, Nashville murder stabbing. That's what we're wow. at. Just four hours, I believe, after she was murdered, right? So you look at that pattern of life. You look at that pattern of use. And I tell these homicide detectives, uh, in a lot of cases, I can tell you pretty much in the first five minutes, maybe, if this suspect is 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 good. Because now what we see is they do. They, they, and that's the truth. They start looking right after they commit a crime. They're looking for News Channel 5, News Channel 2, Fox News, uh, 
Metro Nashville police media releases. Then they're going to the Davidson County Sheriff's Office looking to see if they have any warrants on them. Then they're going to the warrants place. I mean, they're just doing their own research online, right? And that helps us so, so much, especially with McLawhorn. So you look at that whole pattern that that McLawhorn was was using, and then that's the first entry that you find. Nothing about news for months on that telephone, right? Nothing at all. But the first entry that he that he looks um, is Nashville, Tennessee stabbing. I mean, people are creatures of habit. We know that, right? Um, I believe the murder was at about five o'clock in the morning, five forty-five, when Tiffany was killed, and uh, on the twenty-eighth of February, and he did that search right after nine o'clock in the morning. Now that leads me to another thing, right? When you talk about this search, he's homeless. Second thing that I did on that phone was after he did the search on the internet was, does he have service on this phone? He's got a SIM card in it, right? He's got a SIM card. I pulled the SIM card out, got a phone number off the SIM. He's homeless. Did he have service? No, he did not. No service on that phone. So there's only two ways that I know of really to access the internet. That's either through a Wi-Fi connection access point or through a cellular network. He wasn't paying his bill, so he didn't have a cellular network. So what was my next stage? What access point was he connected to? Where so, was he when he did this search? Can we find that out? So were you able to look on the phone and see that? I was, right. I was looking at his, at his, uh, at his Wi-Fi networks. And he connected right down the street, probably four or five blocks away from the crime scene while we were still there working the murder. And he searched for uh, Nashville, Tennessee stabbing. How about that? Right. I mean, there you go. You got a little arson bug here that's killed this very, very sweet woman. And he's at the crime scene watching the fire. Wow. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Right. So right after that, he searches. Uh, That's that's one thing that I do. I go down through. um, Now, obviously, in this, as I'm finding this data, um, I don't call the detectives a lot of times right off the bat. Sometimes I do if it's data that they need or they can help me with. But one person I always call is uh, General Norman. Right. I mean, so I called Jan. Jan was working this case as uh, I think either first chair. She may have been second chair on this one. Whatever chair she was, either the lead attorney or the or the second chair attorney, she was definitely lead chair in the digital forensics and probably the reason she was brought in. Um, she's absolutely fabulous at understanding this data. You don't have to explain data to Jan. She's been doing this so long. Um, when I talked to General Norman about an ISP, a JTAG, a chip off, uh, d- overwritten data in, in a SQL file, something like that, she knows it, right? So she's that type of person. And she and I, right now, we're getting excited. You know, we're getting closer and closer and closer to this being an outstanding case because you have to think we don't have anything really, right? We've got some grainy video. We have no statement. We get him arrested a week later. We have his phone. That's where we are right now in this investigation. But now we have the Nashville, Tennessee stabbing. Now, obviously, the news has put this out, but we have this stabbing and we have him connected. I believe it may have even been a U-Haul place that was really close to the murder scene, but less than four, five hours after the murder. So, 
So he's made this connection via Wi-Fi because he's homeless, but he does have a phone, but no cellular service. He's made this connection. He's done this search, looking to see if there's anything that he can find out about the stabbing. And then then where do you go from here? Were well, you able to well, find at, something else? Well, at that point, I mean, I, I, I'm, I've, you know, if, if you're hunting and you're a duck hunter and you find a good place to hunt and you're sitting there and you're hunting ducks and you've got this one hole that they're all coming in, you're going to stay there. Right. So yeah, I don't leave yet. I'm still, I'm still staying in the internet history. Right. Uh, so we're logging and I hope that was a good analogy anyway. But, That's great. Uh, I'm a, I'm a hunter, but, uh, so yeah, I'm like, why leave now? There's a lot of things. I've got a list going through my head as a, as a, you know, investigator, a detective, violent crimes, now doing this thing with digital forensics. I know where I'm going. And I wish there were two of me so I could get there faster and recover this, but right. There's not. So I got to slow my roll a little bit and, and go on. And, uh, so, so yeah, that wasn't it. And we start going through there. Remember what was the weather outside? It was raining. It was raining. So one of the next searches we found, uh, in there was we'll, we'll rain wash, wash away fingerprints. Right. I mean, how now we're going somewhere. I mean, this is, this is absolutely, um, absolutely crazy so we go through i'm staying there on the internet history and some of the search terms that that we go through and we find out and even some of the websites we go uh he searches can rain wash away fingerprints and then we find different sites that he goes to latent print examination will the rain wash away fingerprints uh he went to yahoo answers can rain wash away fingerprints um can fingerprints be found by police, even if you have no criminal record, right? I mean, that's that's where he's going. Uh, he was in some criminal law question and answer website on that one. Someplace he's probably never been before in his life, obviously. Um, you know, he used uh, Wikipedia, I believe it was. How do police find fingerprints to catch criminals? What happens after a police get a fingerprint match? We going on, I mean... You know, he's, he's even, he's even getting deep in it when I'm going through here and granted, this is right after the murder now, Kim. I mean, this is, this is not just happenstance, right? Where this could be somebody else. No, this is, this is our guy. Um, uh, and he searches APHIS actually, right? I mean, he wants to know what APHIS is and, and you know, obviously APHIS is our, uh, automated police, uh, integrated fingerprint database and, and, um, so one of his last searches in this little search run was how long after fingerprints are lifted, the police make an arrest. So oh, wow. he's trying to find a timeline of if he left his fingerprints there, um, how long would it be until his, he, he got locked up really? So, but I think it's important to note, especially a lot of times on cell phones, um, when we, all of us that started digital forensics years and years and years and years ago, we started with computers, right? It was a lot easier back then, I think. I mean, there was a lot more data to look at. It was it was kind of crummy having to pull all these little hard drives out of these laptops. It's a lot easier to hook a phone up today, but we got some data. And one thing that I was really good at, and I think a lot of the examiners had to be good at back in the day was rebuilding web pages. You know, uh, where did they go? What did they see? And we rebuilt them. I tried to with the internet cache in his little cheap K7 LG phone, uh, but 
it just wasn't happening. Right. You know, and you've got the cash, you've got the history. So one thing that I did, that I did do, and I did this right off the bat was once we started finding these searches, uh, in these URLs on all of these searches, one of the things that I did was even before I started going to look for the internet cache was to copy out all of these URLs and go to these sites on a test computer just to capture what the website looked like a week after he did the search, right? Um, what's the odds of a news of, of a web server being changed on a new site? Pretty significant. What's the odds of something on Yahoo Answers being changed a week later on Quora or Wikipedia or some of these law sites? I mean, pretty good chance that that's still the same content that we're looking at if you don't get the 404 error right there, right? So right. that was one of the things that we did is I went through immediately after this, captured all of the web pages, the whole web pages. Uh, and it was good because we used the web page uh, 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 capture tool that Magnet had, put them in a format that we could use, that we could look at, that we could review. Uh, and we also got all these into court. I was able to come in, explain as an expert witness how these could change, but the possibility of these pages changing was limited. After getting through all of these searches that McLawhorn did about, number one, he's nervous. Did he leave his fingerprints? Can rain wash away uh, DNA uh, on a knife? You know, all of these different things. Um, these, these are searches where he's scared. He's looking. He's doing research on his own, right? He's doing all of these different things to figure out if he's going to get away with this or not. What's his chances of getting away with this or not? He's homeless. Why was he still here a week ago, right? So my thought is at that point, he's still thinking he's going to get away with it. We picked him up once. We let him go. He was off for four or five days, I think, before we arrested him again. But I think the reason I say that is I feel that he got comfortable really quick. I think he got comfortable be, still being at that at that scene after he did the murder. This is just my opinion and, and my experience over 25 years of seeing us detectives over there, uh, maybe to him looking like Keystone cops and not really knowing what we're doing because we don't have anybody, you know, in a in an orange jumpsuit already locked up dragging them to a car. But you know this, and everybody listening to this podcast will know this. We're, it's very methodical when we're on a scene of a homicide, very methodical. So maybe that made him feel more comfortable. Uh, maybe sitting over there uh, doing some other things made him feel comfortable. But what I can say is about 12 hours later, he did a search term. He, he completed a search. And I think he was feeling pretty comfortable at this time that he was going to get away with it scot-free. Um, albeit it was before he was brought in the first time. But he actually searched. He got on Pornhub, which wasn't unusual. But I tell young investigators, young digital investigators, you may not like going through this, but you have to. There's subjects, there's categories in Pornhub that can help you. Even though you look at Pornhub, 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 and you're thinking, you're discounting it like, okay, he's just looking at porn and throwing that all out that it was just porn. Look at these search terms that they're using in these engines inside of these things, because one of the search terms that McLawhorn searched for 12 hours after murdering Tiffany was murderotica suffocation. 
Wow. And that was huge. That was huge. Although we know that wasn't his intent at the time. We think, or I think anyway, that he was just burglarizing. She woke up. He killed her and killed her violently, right? But I'm thinking he's feeling more comfortable now. And now he's maybe even reliving some of these things that he did. But we found that search term inside of Pornhub was murderotica suffocation. Uh, but one of the search terms that I found early on in the investigation, Kim, that I hadn't talked about yet um, is probably one of the most important. And when I say that, it's even more important than him to see if, if rainwater can wash off DNA was he searched for pawn shops. So your suspect has searched for pawn shops and I'm assuming that there's a good deal of things, items that have been stolen then from this or from other crimes. Do you know what he's going to, to pawn? We don't know what he's going to pawn. We know there's some things taken. We know some things are missing. We don't know how much, right? What we do know is that he's probably stole other things and had them stashed away. Maybe even the night before he killed Tiffany. Maybe even while he was going through the car doors, he stashed it somewhere else. But what we do know is that he searched pawn shop about four hours after he murdered Tiffany. So, and that was hugely important. Um, and, and he has no money. He has no vehicle. He has no home. So he has no internet service. So I'm thinking right there, if he did, he has really no friends with cars. He searched pawn shop. First thing that goes through my head, which one did he walk to? Where's the closest pawn shop? So at that time, um, I get some type of Android phone, an LG phone, Android LG, trying to recreate this search that he does in his digital environment, right? I mean, I just don't want to pull out a phone and start searching this. And I got, I got an Android phone. I went over to where I thought he connected to free Wi-Fi. I connected to that same Wi-Fi over there uh, where he was when he did this search and I, to get in his digital environment and I searched for pawn shops. And what does Google do? Thinking that this is what he wanted to see. It gives you right there off the bat, the list of pawn shops. Usually they're in order from closest to farthest away. And it gave me five good hits right there. Um, I started going through and there was one pawn shop that stuck out that was probably the closest off of Franklin Road uh, called Cash America Pawn. And so at the time, we told the detectives, uh, this is something that we would tell them, obviously in real time, contact this pawn shop and go out there, right? And so we called the lead detective, I did. I called General Norman, told her what I had. Um, she agreed, let's get the detectives out there, interview these people at these different pawn shops that came up in your search. See if number one, if they recognize McLawhorn, number two, can we pull video from that day? Right. That's, that's extremely important. Well, a lot of detectives don't work cases a lot of times the way other detectives do. So a substantial amount of time goes by. I talked to general Norman about a week later who contacts me and says that there was some type of cellmate that McLawhorn was with in Davidson County that mentioned he may have went to a pawn shop right after committing the murder. So I'm a little befuddled at this point. So I called the detective back 
and I'm asking him what's going on. And he tells me that he, he told me that they called out there and they checked all the pawn slips to see if they had somebody named uh, Christopher McLawhorn. Uh, a lot of times just calling isn't good enough, right? I mean, you, you being a good detective, you have to know these things uh, and lessons learned, right? I mean, lessons learned. So <clears throat> we got him, asked him to physically go to these pawn shops and look. And sure enough, the detective went out there and the person that ran the name when he originally called ran it under uh, McLawhorn Christopher, first name last, not Christopher McLawhorn. So when they did that, we ended up getting a pawn ticket that he went four hours after murdering Tiffany. So my hunch was right that he searched pawn shops to walk somewhere, and your hunch was right to go pawn something that maybe he stole. And uh, we found out that if I haven't mentioned this, Tiffany had a roommate that was at home as well during during the murder. She wasn't injured. She wasn't hurt. But during the burglary of the home, we'll say the aggravated burglary because that's what it was, he took one of the roommate's rings. And it was this ring that he pawned. So immediately I call out to the pawn shop, talk to the manager, uh, ask him if he's got video. Obviously, this is about a week later, I think. Ask him if we can pull the video. We're going to have to have the video as soon as we can get it. Uh, we know we pawned it in there now. We know he pawned it in there four hours after killing Tiffany. So <clears throat> at that point, uh, he tells me that, uh, tells the detective, I believe it is, when, when the detective calls out there, that he's got the video. It's going to overwrite at any point. Uh, and they're getting ready to sell that location, and they're gone in like a day or two from what I remember. So I call my partners again in the surveillance unit, surveillance and support unit where I work, um, and Jay and, and Tony and Chad High detectives, they fly out there as soon as they, I mean, I think they actually run code three out to the pawn shop. Um, and sure enough, they get it in the nick of time. And um, it is absolutely, I would never say that McLawhorn and beautiful should not ever be in the same sentence but that was the most beautiful video that I've ever seen when we saw that camp. You could actually see match up the clothing that he had. You could match up the rips in his jeans that he had on. We had our man at that point. I mean, and so far, if you think backwards, what has digital forensics done for us in this case? Absolutely everything, every single thing, everything that we have obtained, or everything that we have printed off or everything that we're going to use in court other than the murder weapon and the toboggan that was found and all of the things that CSI does at a crime scene that I don't know about, right? Um, we're going to use all of those things. I mean, this is amazing stuff that we're finding out of some cheap K5, K7 cell phone that we did an ISP to get the data off of. I mean, this is amazing stuff. This was five years ago, four years, five years ago almost, right? So this is amazing things that we've done. And when we build these cases, and like I say, Jan General Norman and I started years ago doing these, we build these cases today like a story that someone would read in a novel when it's presented to a jury. And that's exactly how we build these cases for presentation in court. You can't beat this format 
when this happens, when all of this evidence connects together with these dots, you can't beat it. You can't fast forward. And that's one of the first disclaimers in one of my digital reports is absolutely do not skip forward to page 42 until you've read one through 41, or it may not make sense. But if you read one through 42, there's no doubt in my mind that here's your murder suspect, right? And most people have that situation coming through. I'm not a superstar. I'm not the smartest man in any room, but I know how to work these cases and I know what digital evidence will do. And I know how to put a puzzle together because I think a lot of my experience investigating previous homicides, violent crimes, you know, I investigated the Steve McNair murder, the investigated the Vanderbilt murder, anything that has a high priority to it in this city. Um, I've been involved in it one way or the other. And our team here has involved in it in one way or the other. Right. Um, well, I think it's important for us to, to recognize, and you make a great point, is that when we take this digital evidence and we examine it and we're trying to extract data, you know, many years ago, oftentimes we were asked, you know, well, can you find something that's deleted? Can you find a deleted picture? Can you find, you know, a text message? Can you find something in particular? Now, as you've said, digital forensics is woven into an entire crime scene now oftentimes and is able to paint the picture for the jury. It's able to tell the entire story and is able to confirm and to let folks know that are needing to evaluate this evidence on, you know, what actually occurred or what maybe uh, could have happened or uh, maybe even what didn't happen, which may be just as important as well. It, it is. You know, two th two points to that. Uh, Jan and I were at a conference. I think we were at the National uh, ICAC conference in Dallas um, a couple of years ago before before the virus outbreak. We, we were there. Big room. Uh, guy speaking. Uh, brilliant man. Um, was talking about uh, uh, physical violence on children, this and that. And he asked a simple question. He said, what's the most important evidence that you can recover at a crime scene? And knowing me, you know, I, I'm not bashful. I stood up and I said, digital evidence. I mean, it's not because I work it every day. It's because I'm using common sense to apply this, right? I mean, I'm uh, either me, Tony, Heil, Jason Moyer, Chad High, all of my team members here, we are in court one way or another on every single case that comes in this city, right? So I know that from experience. And I stood up, I said, digital evidence. And I didn't know what to expect. Jan stood up right next to me and she's like, yeah, what he said, you know, I'm, <laughs> it's right. And, and he said, you're exactly right. That's the, the most important thing that, that you can, that you can find, um, as your evidence anymore. And I mean, and, and it just is. And one other thing too, that I like to, uh, that I like to talk about is years ago when we first started into this, um, our police department, like so many others didn't have, uh, examiners. They didn't have forensic examiners. They didn't have lab space. Um, basically in the old days you had disc edit and maybe a copy in case if you were lucky. And that's how you started these, uh, investigations, right? I mean, you've been doing it that long, Kim. Right. Yes. Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, you were lucky if you got a, a little money to build your own computer or buy a Fred, then, I mean, you were, you were, you were right. You were high you were speed. Exactly. High speed. And, you know, back then when we first started this, Kim, 
uh, digital forensics was a nice thing for a police department to have, right? Wouldn't you agree? But it was a nicety. It, it was today. It's a necessity. You're exactly you can't, right. You can't work these cases today without having it. And it's like, even today, there's five of us in here, or four of us that work cases. Um, I wish I could just kind of, if this was a video podcast, I'd take you in our lab and give you a peek. Uh, well, really couldn't, but I mean, I'd, I'd like to, I wish everybody could go look because it's something we're extremely proud of. It's something that we got to build in our new headquarters building here from the ground up because command staff understood it was the it was our chief that came to us early on, Chief Anderson, Steve Anderson, that came to us early on and said, I can see the potential of cell phones. And this was this was years ago, almost two decades ago. I can see the potential of computers. I don't want to have to rely on another agency such as the TBI. Can you build a lab? Can you get trained? Can you do this for the department? I said, absolutely. I think we can. I know a little bit about it. I said, but chief, why are you coming to us? I mean, we're, we're a surveillance unit. You know, we're out following armed robbers and, and murders and all of this and, you know, do the wires. And, and, and he said, because y'all are smart and y'all work everything with a power switch on it. <laughs> and I said, good deal, right? So that's <laughs> that. We, if it's got a power switch, SISU is, is involved in it. So we, we, we took that horse by the reins and we ran with it. We went and decked out a lab. Uh, which was about the size of a walk-in closet when we first started. Didn't really know what we were doing, uh, but but we've learned over the last 17 years how to do this, how to put it together, um, and and we would be at a standstill today if we didn't have that type of lab in there right now to work these cases. I mean, heck, Kim, homicide knows when to call us on something extremely important, right? I mean, if, if they get a case where um, where, where a child is shot, where an innocent woman bystander is shot, they know that we'll come in here and we'll drop this, uh, what we're doing. And nine times out of 10, uh, they bring in their legal paperwork with that extraction that we need to do. We're through that device and usually doing a quick search. We've given all of that to them and they're, they're running with it. I mean, some of your folks came and, and visited my lab, Kelly and Tara, um, uh, Mr. Brooks, they all came up here a few months ago. And one thing that they asked, they said, how do you do this with just four people in here? And I said, well, it's not really a secret. I mean, we do about a thousand phones a year. We dump, we do all these extractions, but our shop is more anymore. We were SISU. We will, we will analyze high profile cases, really insensitive cases cases that need immediate attention, but we've trained our detectives on portable case, on all of these different tools that when we give them a extraction report and we create them a report, they're salivating. They're ready to go and dig into this. They have off network computers that they can get with the internet, go to world map view. They're looking, they know where to look. Uh, it, 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 you can get, when we get free time, if we ever do, we'll just, throw out a simple email at two o'clock in the afternoon and say, Hey, uh, we're going to, you know, detective high is going to give a CDR class. Gish is going to give a, uh, a class on, on, on how to analyze GPS history. Um, and why not to use Wi-Fi and cell phone tower hit so much. And we'll have a full class in the training room with people just coming in because we teach them 
how to do this. And that's the state of forensics that we're in. We're long past McLawhorn with four gigabyte phone dumps. I did one this morning that was 256 gig iPhone and it had 252 gig of data on it, right? So we're long long past forensic units and digital forensic units and this sort of thing, being able to analyze every single device and every nibble of data that comes through here, pardon the pun, but we, we we're past that point. So we learned a long time ago to teach our investigators not to be experts in digital forensics, but at least give them the tools and the confidence to go in and look at this low hanging fruit, being able to grab this low hanging fruit. And then if they have a question after that, Hey, what does this GPS thing mean right here where my suspect is supposed to be at the victim's house and three minutes before that, it says that he's in Detroit. True story. And I'm like, ooh, that's not good. Let me take a look at it. So I go through there and I look and I'm like, oh, don't worry about that. He's like, what do you mean don't worry about that? I said, no, you're good. Let me explain it to you. You know, when when, when Axiom parses data, it's parsing all of this data and it's looking through all of that data for latitude and longitude coordinates, right? It just so happened it found latitude and longitude coordinates in a picture that was sent to him on Instagram that said, uh, welcome to Detroit, some lady in an airport that was waving. And that's where it was taken four hours before your murder. He didn't take this picture. That picture was sent to him. So you see where I'm going. And we tell these little bitty things to get them to look a little bit deeper, to get them to go. So they're not looking like some detectives would do this. Oh my God, he was in Detroit. There's no way he could have been my suspect. No, let's take a little deeper dive into that. And let's see where these this this data is coming from, right? Let's 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 look at it. No, it's a picture in his Instagram. He got you know six hours after the murder, and the picture was taken in Detroit four hours before the murder. We're good, so they understand a, these things now. Right, that's a fantastic approach to put that back into the hands of your detectives. You know, give them that power to look through the data, or truly, it's the evidence for their case, and it's a different approach to investigations really for those folks, even if you're not the examiner like you are, even if you're the investigators that are out there working the case, working the field, they're the folks who are going to have to kind of rethink maybe what their evidence is and to to help themselves. I mean, you can't hand them, as you said, you can't hand them everyone in zero. And if you did, they wouldn't understand or they wouldn't want or have the time to be able to dig through every single detail. So I, I love your approach to educating those folks. Uh, otherwise, it's overwhelming to them. So you all have a it, great approach to that. It, it is overwhelming. It's overwhelming to us. And that's one thing that we do now. And, and I'll, I'll go back into the search warrants a little bit. Obviously, every agency or every state is going to be somewhat different in their approach to search warrants. But one thing that we want to do, a lot of agencies that I've heard and going to classes and, you know, when I go and lecture and I speak or, or listen to other people lecture, one thing that I hear is all oh, these judges, man, they're not letting us do full dumps of phones. And I'm sitting here thinking, why would you want to? Right. I mean, look, if you're looking for a homicide that was a heat of a murder homicide on a dope deal that went wrong and this fellow's got a, a 512 gig Android and he's got 340 gig on this thing. Why in the world do you want 340 gig? I would get lost in 340 gig of data. Why don't you go, you know, four days before the murder and let's just ask for data in your search warrant for a time frame, including uh, uh 10:20 to 10:24 until you seize the phone. 
You seize the phone on the 22nd. Let's go all the way through it. We'll get an image of the phone, right? Then we'll throw the SIM card back in it and we'll turn it on to see if he's wiped it or if we've got more data coming down to it. If it's a really, really important case, either way, it's going to be good. You can prove that he sent a wipe signal to the phone and wiped it. Or number two, you're getting more data to that phone that you didn't have in the first place. So why don't you do it on the 20th? Let's run it to the 24th. Then you've given the DA ammunition to fight in a suppression hearing where the defense attorney is always going to say a privacy issue and you're doing nothing but fishing. On the other side of the aisle, you've got the DA on this suppression hearing saying, judge, no, you could hear Jan doing this right now, right? No, that's wrong, judge, your honor. Detective Gish only extracted four days of data on this cell phone to give to the examiner to look at. In fact, that's what was asked in the cell phone. So how could either one of these detectives be fishing? And moreover, they've categorized every type of data that they're looking for in the extraction. They didn't need calendar entries. They didn't ask for it, Judge. You see where I'm going with this, right? Absolutely. It's just, it gives more ammunition. And that's one thing that we're really, really, really good at in our department is helping these these new kids coming in here, new kids, I'll, I call them kids, but these these new detectives coming in and giving them some insight on these search warrants. I mean, around the police department, we teach SISU, each one of us have our own little niche. I'm more of the cell phone, the computer guy. Jay Moyer's more of the video, the technical uh, surveillance van, that sort of fella. Chad High, he's our cast guy. He's the CDR records. Tony, our young guy, Tony, he's great at everything, right? So he pitches in and he helps every one of us. And we all go out and we teach what we know to help these younger detectives with these search warrants to help them better their cases, right? So, you know, a year ago, we were getting horrible warrants. I call them horrible. We'd have them, hey, you need to rewrite this. You just can't ask for all this data under the sun. Uh, man, I get lost in this data as an examiner. Why don't you ask Basically, I'm not going to rehash this, but the things that you and I have been talking about, Kim, and they're like, that's a great idea. Right. When when Axiom is coming out and it's giving you 2.75 million entries for this whole phone dump, why don't you just ask for four days so, you know, your computer downstairs doesn't lock up and you can you can go through this data and bookmark things a lot quicker. Then guess what? If you find something in there that leads you back to something that you need before your date range, you've already got the search warrant written. I've already got the full extraction of the phone. Just go do another warrant. Tell me the days you want. I'll give them to you then. So it works beautifully. Yeah, absolutely. Again, educating your folks, getting the, the knowledge to the people in the field that are going to ultimately help these cases to get solved quicker, easier, more efficiently, and more accurately. So I have to ask you, did you find the picture of the toboggan on McLawhorn's phone? <laughs> that is the question that most people would want to know, right? Because that was the first thing that was going through my mind. Well, the, one of the first pieces of evidence that I saw that kind of had a gut feeling, just a hunch that that was probably his hat trying to get away so fast. And yeah, we did. In fact, we go through, we start looking at all of the data. Um, that was one of, actually, it was one of the last things that I did was start searching for that hat, even though it was one of the first things I wanted to do. That's a forensic exam for you though, right? You kind of follow the evidence, you build this, the, you connect all of the dots. Um, 
you, you jot down things that you need to do so you don't forget to do them and then you go back and look but yeah that's one of the last things i found but it was in there in fact mclawhorn had uploaded a facebook picture um with himself wearing that hat the day before the murder in fact it was like 29 hours before the murder he had that gray toboggan on with the nintendo patch and that was just icing on the cake um you know so so yeah answer your question we did two more things really just uh, two more there was a lot of evidence in this but just just a couple of more things i want to talk about um we were able to go through not only to the toboggan and the video um we were able now since we have the video from the pawn shop we could identify his clothes right the, the, the we could see rips we could maybe determine colors on a color scale but nighttime video you could be wearing a red shirt and it could look black right we just don't know but now that we have this video of him walking into the store with with the same clothes on um wasn't full of blood which was good uh we were able to start looking and one of the one of the last things i did in the investigation was pop that video up on a screen next to my exam machine and then i went through with axiom just all through the pictures of his personal pictures uh which now y'all make it easier for us because i can go through with ai and actually pick people right and pick faces but at the time i was going through you know eight thousand pictures trying to identify things and and we found i found a few pictures in there that identified even some of the clothes that he was wearing in there but the toboggan was found uh it was found at facebook uh on that he had deleted everything from facebook for some reason or another uh, and we never got that back one of the other things i found was in his internet history i started looking at a lot of the cache where he was going to different news sites after a while and there were a lot of pictures on their um, screenshots, basically the the streaming video screenshots that you'll see in your internet cache from web pages where it was uh, breaking news, search for stabbing suspect, News Channel Five, pictures of Tiffany that the news have put up, things of that nature. I was um, obviously didn't go through a new site to capture all of these different websites because they changed hourly, really, right? You know, so. I went through and tried to rebuild the web pages the best I could, matching up a lot of the cached images that I recovered through Axiom with a lot of the internet history that was recovered as well. Uh, one other thing that I want to talk about was, so we recovered a witness's phone there that had some information. We started going through this. I dumped the phone. One, one of the things that I knew may or may not be in there was conversations between uh, McLawhorn and this witness. So one of the things that that I did find was a was a text message from McLawhorn um, to the witness, and it was actually the night of the murder. And the message simply says, "If cops ever ask you what I was doing, I was drinking, hanging out, and I don't have bags or nothing, just the clothes on my back. And I got into it with someone, but you don't know much because you were downtown playing music." So that's kind of a text message that's icing on the cake. Uh, however, to show his demeanor, I think he's a complete sociopath, obviously. What I will say is three weeks before the murder, um, I found another text message on his phone. And it was kind of an argument between uh, the witness and McLawhorn. And McLawhorn sent messages and it said, um, 
I'm going to kill you while you sleep and I'm not effing around. Wow. Three weeks before the murder. Like I say, all of this, we can sit here and, you know, some people will say, oh, yeah, we do that every day. That's great. That's how you learn, right? Some people will like looking at this podcast and understanding what you can do with the digital evidence. Uh, One thing that I want to say is if I was just starting out like I was 17 years ago when I didn't know uh, the difference between uh, when, when somebody would talk about hash, I maybe thought they were talking about potatoes since I was in the South. I've learned a lot since then, right, obviously. Um, but I think it's great what, what Magnet is doing with these podcasts. Uh, absolutely phenomenal. Um, I wish that I could sit down at a desk 17 years ago and listen to something like this, which we could um, in, in some ways or another. Most of the podcasts that you will listen to when they're related to digital forensics in my realm get over technical. When things get over technical, you lose interest, you lose an understanding. And I try to explain digital forensics the way I understand it and the way I learned it. When I explain it this way with these goofy analogies and things of this nature, juries seem to catch on to this, right? I mean, uh, I've testified probably very close to over 300 times as an expert witness in state, federal, and local court. Um, And most of the time, it seems that the jurors uh, enjoy my testimony because I put it in real-life situations where they can understand it. But I think Magnet's doing a great job of not just interviewing the people that write code that explains how data works. Talk to the investigators out there that understand this data in their own personal way. And I think that helps, and it goes a long way. So the, the, the training staff there um, is, is the, the consultants there, reach out to Trey, reach out to Jad, reach out to Mark Brooks. This is just absolutely phenomenal. And I want to thank you too, Kim, for doing this. Uh, but we can't lose sight of who we do this job for. And that's for people such as Tiffany Ferguson, who should not have died that night. And um, hopefully we can prevent a lot of this. And if we can't prevent it, maybe this podcast will help somebody solve one the way we solve Tiffany's. Awesome. Thank you. Now I got to go back and ask you one more thing. So we can, can you tell me what the disposition of this case was? How did this end up in court for Mr. McLaughlin? Oh, we had a trial. Uh, We had it. We had a big trial and uh, jury trial and it did not end up good at all Um, for, for him. He's, he's life in prison plus extra years. So I think it's life in prison and Jan would know more about this obviously, but it's life in prison plus maybe 15 years for, uh, the aggravated burglary tacked onto the end of the of, of the uh, first degree murder. So yeah, he's he's in the he's in the penitentiary for the rest of his life. Uh, no death penalty, obviously. We would not be able to prove uh, first degree motive, premeditation motive on this. But nonetheless, he's going to spend the rest of his life in a cage where he belongs. That's it from us today. Thanks so much to Detective Chad Gish for telling us about this case. Digital Forensics in Real Life is a production of Magnet Forensics. This episode was mixed and edited by Phil Froklidge with production help from Lindsay Ward. Our original theme music is by Rick Andrade. I'm your host, Kim Bradley. Thanks for listening. <laughs>